you, everyone, and welcome for, uh, to this as well. It doesn't sound like it should be a fun discussion, but I think it's going to be a really interesting one and a really important one. What does race science look like in the 21st century? To understand what it looks like now, we need to look at how it's come to this stage, what its history is. And I'm delighted to welcome three wonderful writers and thinkers, each of whom has written a powerful new book. I read them all in the last few weeks. And what I loved was that they all had a different kind of complementary part of the whole picture. Um, Derek, ba um, Derek A. Bardwell's No Win Race uses sport as the prism through which to explore British attitudes to race and achievement, encompassing politics, media coverage, and social history. I love the way that he used specific moments, specific boxing matches, specific sporting events, and linked them to the bigger picture of how we see ourselves, how race is treated in this country. And as a British man and as a parent, aware of how public figures matter as role models and as villains. Gavin Evans Swindoop, sitting on the far left for me, uh, far right for you, looks at the long and repetitive history of racialist science. And I remember growing up with the word racialist, which got shortened to racist, but I sometimes think it's helpful to remember that's the original word. Um, the repetitive history of racialist science with particularly fascinating insights from having grown up in apartheid South Africa. And in the middle, Angela Saini, who previously tackled the enduring and comparable warping of science by those intent on proving women inferior to men. She's now turned her eyes to the return of race science in her new book, Superior. So I wanted to just set out what we'll be discussing, ask then our speakers to tell us a little bit about the kind of themes of their book, and then we'll get to discussing. We're going to have good time for questions, so do think over the course of our discussion what you might like to ask. And of course, really importantly, there's a chance to buy their incredible books afterwards, and I really do urge you to read them. They're wonderful. So the things that I have on my list that I'd like to get through between now and nine o'clock are a bit about the history of race science, some myth-busting about some of those things that we hear about in the news, about didn't life has been developed in Europe because of, aren't Kenyans naturally faster runners because of, um, looking at sports specifically, looking at health and race, people thinking about different conditions and treatments, are they genetic, are they racially um, sort of specific, intelligence. This obsession with measuring intelligence and race, how we measure it, the value of IQ tests, modern race science, how we've come to where we are, including the fact that there are people in government right now who have a really interesting connection to some of the racist science going on um, in the history of the 21st and 20th century. So, get through all of that and questions. Let's go ahead. I'm going to ask Angela first, tell me um, just a couple of minutes about what you've heard to explore in your book Superior. Well, I guess the main thrust of a lot of my work, or at least a lot of my work for the last five years, has been um, trying to undermine this myth that science is somehow always purely objective. And I think race science, for me, was the prime example of that, because we have this very long history from the birth of modern science onwards, showing us just how toxic an idea race and the idea of a, of a racial hierarchy can be and how even to this day that hasn't gone away. We have eugenics, we have Nazi racial hygiene, um, but we also have so many um, scientists throughout the world whose ideas have fed into these really toxic, this really toxic ideology that we still live with. So much so that science has become embedded in the story of race to the point where now we believe these myths, we believe in these uh, biological aspects to race, every single one of us. So I have friends who sometimes think in these terms. I think I have thought in these terms 
before, and I really wanted to dissect that and get to the heart of, well, actually, what does science really say about human difference? And also put that in context. So there are a lot of um, science books on race out there, on the genetics of race, but unless we understand the historical and social context of these ideas and where they came from and how they're still being perpetuated, I don't think we get anywhere. And I think that's what I'll try to do. Thank you. Gavin. I also um, initially started researching and wrote a book on um, gender called Map Readers and Multitaskers. And I was looking um, there at um, the differences between men and women and, and why they are not as great as, as most people think they are. And as I was doing the research, I started finding that people who were arguing on a kind of Mars and Venus basis that, that uh, there were huge differences between men and women were also writing about race and were saying that there were real differences in the brains of, of black and white people um, or of Jewish and non-Jewish people, people like Steven Pinker, for example. Um, so I began um, researching this book, and I looked at four different areas. The one was archaeology, which was a theory put forward by... Um, Noah Harari, for example, um, uh, um, uh, and others, that there was a kind of great leap forward in intelligence about 60,000 years ago, and in some versions even more recently that it happened in, in, in Europe because of ice age conditions. And I show that modern human beings like us go back at least 100,000 years, but we, we find them probably much further. 315,000 years ago, we find that people were traders, for example. So it indicates um, people like us. So that's one area. The second area I look at is, is, is looking at genetics um, and why real differences in the bodies of different populations are important. Um, some groups have sickle cell anemia because of exposure to, to malaria. Um, have no implications for intelligence because there are thousands of genes, thousands of alleles um, involved in, um, uh, in, in intelligence. So they're not comparing life with life. And then I looked um, at IQ theory because there's a view um, out there in, in, in the blogosphere, but, but also with people like, um, like Steven Pinker, for example, um, like Charles Murray, like Andrew Sullivan, that the differences in population groups with IQ scores reflect something profound in terms of innate intelligence. And I show why differences um, between populations and IQ scores have nothing to do with innate um, intelligence, they're entirely environmental in origin. And then finally, I look at, at the revival of race science with the alt-right and how it's proliferating on the web and why it is so dangerous now, more than it has been for a long time. Thank you. Derek. Um, so my book, uh, No Win Race, um, it, it looks at race and racism in modern Britain through the prism of sport. And um, it, it kind of covers the period between 1981, the Brixton riots, and, and Brexit now, um, and to be honest, be forever. Um, and um, it, I, I guess I, I was trying to do two things with the book. Um, the first thing was really look at the athletes and events during that, that period that reflected the racial mood and tensions of the time. So you can pretty much chart some of the athletes and things that happened in the 80s and talk about multiculturalism and go right through to conversations about Lewis Hamilton, you know, and talking about post-racial society. So I wanted to do that in one sense. And in the second sense, I very much wanted to talk about not divorcing sport from society. Of course, they're, they're interlinked. And I very much use my relationship with my father, um, who was part of the Wimworth generation and came over here um, you know, to make a better life of himself, very uh, loyal to to Britain, um, very much in, in that sense, except for everything except for cricket. Um, and and myself, who had a very 
conflicted relationship with this this country. You know, I classify myself as politically black and wouldn't support England at sport or in any, you know, sphere because of, you know, being stopped in church um, and other incidents I had. And then my son, who is, you know, English-born but of Nigerian and Jamaican heritage, who, you know, if England lose in a football match, he will be crying, you know, he'll be sobbing at the end of the match. And I guess the book reflects on how we've evolved, um, three generations of black males have evolved, how us in a sporting sense have evolved in terms of our relationship with the, this country, um, but how this country hasn't really evolved in its relationship with us. Um, we are still viewed as black, as in black as a threat, as outsiders, as aggressive. And I guess the book really reflects on how racism mutates and how things have uh, changed, but they haven't really changed. One of the things I was just remembering as you were all talking was um, how people seem to forget that Winston Churchill was really keen on eugenics. It was an incredibly popular idea um, at the start of the 20th century. And I wondered if we could just have a couple of, of sort of specific definitions. One is how should we define race science? I don't know if you want to take that, Angela, or um, Gavin. No. Well, it's, it's the, I would say that even science now is racist if it still uses race as though it is a biological entity, that it's real, that these are meaningful categories. When we talk about race science, what we're essentially saying is, um, I guess this will chime with you, <laughs> is that um, at some point someone decided we can categorize people, we can divide people up in a certain way. At the very beginning of that process, people just didn't know how to categorize people, so they had, sometimes they had three categories, sometimes they had four or five or thousands. And is it pinpointed to the start of empire as a major operation, or is it broader well, than that? These ideas kind of feed into each other. So the idea of human difference, of course, has always been around. People have noticed a difference. But the idea of categorizing that difference. And just remind us of those kind of early categories, what they were. Well, some of them were just color. They were just red, white, black, <laughs> yellow. It was yellow, wasn't it? And red, yeah. possibly. Yes. Um, uh, others were geographical, so continent, you know, based on the continents. Um, Linnaeus, who is one of these early taxonomists who kind of classified the natural world, even put monster-like and feral humans, people he hadn't met yet, you know, because he was guessing what will the world be like, you know, what, what categories of humans might exist out there. People just didn't know. And the reason for this is that as humans, of course difference exists. The way that difference works is, so I will be genetically and physically more closely related to the people in my immediate family. I have a slightly weaker link to my extended family, slightly weaker link again to my further away family. We have tended to live near, near our kin, not all of us. I mean, for example, I don't because my parents were immigrants to this country, but you know, historically we have tended to. And so that genetic relationship gets weaker and weaker the further you go away. So if you want to talk about race, you could draw your lines wherever you like. You can draw them at the family level, the community level, the village level. But you have to remember that the relationship gets weaker and weaker the bigger you get. At the continental level, it's pretty much meaningless. But this is how these categories have now come to take on their meaning. And it's all to do with politics. Where you draw these lines is political. So when scientists say, which they do, race is a social construct, that's what they mean. Where we have drawn the lines is a social construct. Did you want to add anything? Yeah, I just, I, for me, racism is, is a belief that's primarily a belief that's obviously acting on those beliefs um, is, is racist. 
and, and it's a belief that there are innate differences between different groups of people, between different population groups or um, however they're defined between different races. And scientific racism is, is attaching categories of science to those beliefs. So in the 19th century, um, that came from measuring skulls and, 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 and the idea that different race groups, different population groups that we've seen now have different sized skulls and therefore different intelligence. Today, um, it focuses on measuring, trying to measure what's inside those skulls. Um, so IQ so tests. IQ tests, for example, is the prime means um, um, of that. Um, and I'm interested in how it survived World War II because we know that in the period leading up to um, the 1930s, there was this huge growth, particularly in Germany, of this obsession with kind of Aryan thinking, of, of the skull measuring, of, um, of trying to sort of quantify racial differences. It seemed that a lot of things, I wouldn't say the slate was wiped clean, but there seemed to be a pretty general idea that the Nazi way of viewing race was a terrible thing. Um, I know in your book, Angela, you do look at kind of key individuals, including Nazi scientists who were quite young, who were instrumental in actually kind of reseeding this. Can you tell us a bit about how it started? Well, the idea today that racism is a bad thing was not always the view. <laughs> we forget that. So in the 19th century, for instance, to be racist, to believe that there was a racial hierarchy, was quite mainstream thinking, even among scientists. And for a lot of the early 20th century, what really kind of put an end to that was Nazi racial hygiene in the Holocaust. Then people started thinking differently about this and started seeing the dangers in this way of thinking. And that's when this kind of global consensus emerged that race science has no place in biology. If we're going to study race, it has to be in the social sciences, in the study of racism and discrimination, because race is a social construct. But obviously, not everyone was on board with that. Scientists who've been studying racial difference or eugenics, uh, whatever you want to call it, for years, not all of them bought into this. And in fact, there were very many prominent scientists, even, even then in the 1950s, at Oxford, at Cambridge, who thought that um, perhaps we weren't even one species, who weren't completely convinced of that yet. So these people, some of them on the softer end of believing these things, some of them on the harder end, those on the harder end, we still have today. So they set up this journal, the Mankind Quarterly, which I talk about in depth in the book, um, but essentially, it was a journal for scientific racists who couldn't get published anywhere else. And they included Nazi race scientists, they included um, British you know, professors at universities, Americans, people all over the world. And it's still in publication now. And the funding of it was quite interesting. Tell us about the pioneer funds. It's funded, um, it was funded in the beginning uh, by a very wealthy segregationist in the, in the US called Richard Draper. And he essentially inherited a lot of money. His family had been in the slave trade and then government manufacturing and um, textiles. So he had all this cash committed to stopping desegregation in the US and wanted to build an intellectual case for it. Um, so he funded the sci these scientific racists and the journal uh, well into the 90s. You know, it's only very recently that the funds... Well, the pioneer funds... I mean, a lot of the stuff in the Bell Curve yeah, was funded um, by the Pioneer uh, Fund. Yeah. Well, a lot of the material was funded by the Pioneer Fund. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the, Bell Curve, the Bell Curve was very crucial. I mean, there just, reminds the 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 just reminds the Bell Curve was a book published in 1994. 94. Yeah, 94. The, the book came, which came out with huge publicity um, and was um, promoted by 
um, Andrew Sullivan, who was a very prominent journalist in, in America, British um, Oxford um, student who went and, and um, the edited New the, the New Republic mm. uh, magazine. And it, it, it got huge publicity. Um, and um, a lot of its sources were, were um, people who had written um, papers that were funded by this ultra-racist, ultra-right pioneer fund. Um, and, uh, of course, eventually the critiques came in of the bell curve, which showed that the uh, studies it was relying on were hugely not reliable, that the conclusions were not um, didn't follow from the premises, and that it was basically unscientific. Um, but it had a big impact because what happened then was it put race science back into the mainstream. Well, crucially, it, it sort of posited this idea that you could prove that sort of poor black communities were poor and underachieving because they were black. That yeah. was the thesis. And I wondered, uh, Derek, in, I mean, you know, you, like me, you'll remember the impact of that book. I remember it coming out, and I remember the fuss that was made about it and how seriously it was debated. And, of course, the implications of that, because it, it basically went along with a certain political ideology, which is to say, if certain groups are poorer, it's not to do with discrimination or all those kind of issues that are social. There's something inherently problematic in this community. What's your take well, on that? Your fault. You know, that's, that's uh, what it comes down to. And if you look at, you know, policy, government interventions, um, you know, everything is geared towards fixing the individual. Um, it's geared towards if you're in a particular state, um, it's because of something that is wrong with you. It's nothing to do with the system or the structures. So you look at policy, you look at sport. You know, we, we get caught up in sport around individual incidents of racism, which distracts us from the systemic issues of racism. So, you know, all of these things, it, it might have been disproven and some of the sources uh, not credible, but the damage is already done because mm -hmm. it's already, um, uh, you know, promoted a particular worldview. And, you know, what I find interesting, this is interesting in your book, Andrew, is just the sources of funding that goes or sits behind trying to preserve these ideologies because there's a whole wealth of money that pays for, whether it's lobbying regulatory body bodies or think tanks and, and research, whatever it might be, that continually uh, reinforces all of these age-old concepts. And that's why it's so insidious and endemic. So it's a kind of um, kind of rich loan, is it, feeding the soil in which you can then grow all those um, ideological policies that say we mm. don't have to deal with this problem because it's somehow their problem. Let's move on to some of the myths then that have emerged around uh, race science and um, let's have you all kind of take them apart for us. Um, what are some of the common myths about race? Let me put that first, Andrew, and see then. Yeah, so I mean, probably the most common is that different population groups um, have different innate intelligence. And the, the current version of that is so that it's, it's, it's seen as the kind of acceptable face of, of what is really um, scientific racism, is that Ashkenazi Jewish people are innately more intelligent than, than anybody else. Um, and it's a kind of thin edge of the wedge um, sort of argument, because if you, accept, if you accept that, and if that was true, then it would imply the corollary would be that there would be other groups that would be innately less intelligent um, and, and so one then has to look very carefully at the arguments that were put forward um, about Ashkenazi Jews being innately more intelligent. And this is a very widespread thing. So you, you, you get people promoting it like, well, Jordan Peterson is one, Steven Pinker um, is another, Sam Harris 
um, is another, as well as the, the, the kind of usual suspects, people like Richard Lynn from the University of, of Belfast, who has been a kind of pioneer, fund, pioneer funder and a pioneer raiser. So the University of Ulster. Ulster, Ulster, yeah. yes. Although so they've so dissociated themselves or something. They yeah. have yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, and this idea is, is that Ashkenazi Jews are innately more intelligent because um, they score more highly on IQ tests. Um, and, and that is true. On average, they do. What's not often recognized, I, and, and I'm, I'm saying this, my, my father was an Ashkenazi Jew, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm saying it from one of the reasons why I looked into this so much. Um, before um, the Second World War, um, and uh, typically at around the time of the First World War, where a huge number of IQ testing was done on American soldiers, Ashkenazi Jews, um, on average, scored significantly lower than the um, white American population average. Now, they haven't, people haven't changed genetically. What has happened is that you've got a more educated um, uh, second, third, fourth generation become more educated. Exactly the same thing happened with Chinese Americans. They were um, two generations ago were below average in IQ, now above um, um, average. So that idea that population groups, um, because they have different average IQs, that reflects something profound. I mean, the, the, perhaps the best example um, is that in half a generation, the average IQs of Kenyan children rose by something like 23 IQ points. And that was a result of better nutrition, better education, um, and so on. So uh, I, I think that the, the key myth at, um, is that different population groups have different innate intelligence. There's one that I want to pick out with you, is uh, the gene for light skin, the claim that that emerged only after humans had migrated to Europe. Yeah. Well, that is a, a very common idea. It's, 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 a, it's one that seems fairly logical, because when you arrive in a colder country, um, your, uh, if you've got a lighter skin, it absorbs vitamin D more. So if you've got a darker skin, you're more likely to suffer from diseases like rickets. Um, and so the idea then would be that through natural selection, um, light skin develops in, in, in that way. Um, and um, it's possible that uh, sunlight had something to do with that. But now, um, through full genome analysis, what has been found is that the genes for light skin um, originated in Africa. Um, so, and that there was huge variation going way back, um, hundreds of thousands of years before modern human beings, um, uh, for light skin as well as dark skin. So it's a much more complicated picture. And just on that point, we found um, now that full genome analysis has been done um, of the remains of people who were the hunter-gatherers before waves of farmers and herders came down in, into Britain um, from about 9,000 years ago. Kedaman, for example, um, were black people, black, had black skin, um, dark black hair, and blue eyes. And this is the same, not only in Britain, but, but throughout um, northwestern Europe. The hunter-gatherers were black-skinned or dark-skinned people, um, with, with, um, interestingly, with blue eyes. So it does um, rather complicate the picture in terms of the relation between sunlight and, and light skin. Okay. Um, Andrew, is there a, a particular myth that you'd like to pick out? Um, well, I have to say, this, uh, I know we're going to come on to sport later, but I really no, love giving. I know nothing about sport. In fact, there was a white supremacist website this week that said that because I was an Indian woman, I probably knew nothing about sport after I reviewed Gavin's book. Uh, and sadly, in my case, they're right. <laughs> 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 
but I think the myths that he busts around kind of Kenyan mar marathon runners and stuff are really brilliant. But, you know, a, a lot of this, what you see throughout the history of race science when it comes to IQ or whether it comes to skin color or whatever it is that people are measuring and grading you on is how those myths change. So in the early 20th century, when uh, in the, in the um, eugenics research that was being done in East London, people would go out and test the Jewish population there, find the IQ of children was lower, and then say, you know, these are not the people that we want. We don't want any Jewish immigrants. You know, they're the dregs of society. We need to kind of eugenically cleanse the city of this kind of dangerous immigrant uh, community that we have. And now, now that the Jewish community has done really well, um, you know, accumulated wealth and done well in universities, now they're saying, well, the Jewish community is the most clever, you know, these are the genetically the most clever people. The targets always change. Um, and of course there's a flip side to the most clever always. people who yeah. accumulate wealth, which takes you in a different yeah. way to the yeah. same. And then these things get complicated. And the example I always use is why are there so many Indian doctors, you know? Mm. Now is it genetic? Do Indian people make better doctors than anyone else? No, of course not. It's because culturally different places in the world value different things. And in India, uh, being a doctor, going to the medical profession is a stable, um, revered thing to do. So loads of kids want to do it. They work really hard in order to do it. Their children still do it when, they, um, when their parents immigrate. And this is why you see things turn out the way it does. And that's true of everyone. You know, people used to think about Greeks and Italians, the stuff that American eugenicists used to write about Greek and Italian immigrants. Nobody does that anymore. Just, you know, it's just, why do so many Italians want to be prime minister <laughs> as a racial group? I just, I just had a really good line today. Someone said, um, given, given the damaging effects in this country, someone should put Eton into offset special measures. But that's just my line. <laughs> Both of my lines. Um, I want to talk a bit more about sport because there's a wonderful section in your um, book, Derek, where you look at how come there were all these amazing white um, athletes in Britain in the 80s, like Steve Ovette um, and was it Steve Ovette, Steve Cram. And Seb Coe. And I remember, I remember watching, you know, mm. um, those amazing um, competitions and Brendan Foster as well. Yeah. So you looked at that. And how come no one says, oh, oh he's amazing. The white <laughs> race is so superior in long-distance athletics. So what's the story? Well, you know, first things first. There's, there's a wonderful writer in Ameri America called Howard Bryant. And he, he wrote this book called The Heritage. And the thing that he pointed out, you know, very much is that when, you know, blacks were allowed to get into certain sports. I mean, Jackie Robinson became the first black person to play Major League Baseball, you know, uh, there was a, a huge rush to, to um, have black people play baseball, and that's happened in basketball and other sports. Um, but what they took was the black body. They didn't take the black brain, you know. So you had these Negro leagues that had been running for years and years and years, super successful, super successful coaches and brilliant. But ultimately what's always happened is that where people are most comfortable seeing black people is on the field of play, running around let the natives play. That's the real science. And they're happy with that because of all of the misconceptions around black physicality and being a natural athlete. If you look at the depictions of um, black athletes, their success is based on, uh, on um, natural talent. It's never based on grit and intelligence and a lot of the other things that 
um, you know, would be attributed to a lot of running. There was an amazing know. film based on uh, experience of a young um, black British girl growing up. It was called The Girl with Brains in Her Feet, because that's what the teacher said to her. Yeah. But she had her brains in her feet. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 and, and that's what you had with a lot of those athletes. And it's really interesting that once a number of those British athletes started to, um, you know, that weren't so good in the 90s, so Seb and Steve, you know, by the 80s, you know, had won their gold medals and stuff. And then the 90s, you saw more Ethiopian and Kenyan athletes, something that um, Gavin speaks about in, in his book. Um, and then it became this them and us, as if the Kenyan athletes were these, and the Ethiopian athletes were these superhuman athletes, like they were beyond, um, you know, beyond humans. And, and you know, I remember listening to the commentary at the time and listening to, to the things that would be said that was, and it wasn't even Britain against Africa, it was Europe against Africa, was for, uh, for these white European athletes to succeed, they have to work triple, quadruple hard, need to be super intelligent, and even then they wouldn't um, particularly succeed. So you'd hear it in the commentary, you would hear it in the way, and there's loads of studies in the States about biased commentary um, around sport. You would always hear this, and, and as I remember as a kid, you, you know, you'd be listening to this, and you'd think, you know, my God, are they going to keep describing a black athlete as a gazelle, or are they going to keep calling us naive? Because that seemed to be the two words that we were always described as. Um, we were either super athletes, superhuman gazelles, one like a gazelle, or we were naive and not intelligent. And you know, I think where it, for me, became really sort sort of super sinister was in the depictions of the West Indian cricket team in the, in the 80s because the way that they were described, and this was by you know, the big English commentators of the time, you know, the big uh, writers of the time as you know, savages, beastly, and, and everything that you could describe as animalistic, mm. largely because I think a lot of those writers, what they saw was these West Indian players colonizing England, and they saw that symbol in living color on their screen of West Indies dominating England. And they did everything to undermine that. And you saw that in the commentary, you saw that in the way that these um, great cricketers were depicted. Um, but you also found from, from watching you know, the West Indies play that the English were seeing something that they absolutely feared. And as I said, I think the biggest fear now is seeing more black people in the boardroom. You know, that's the biggest fear at this particular point. Um, and the, the, the athletics issue is really interesting because I hadn't thought about it. But you looked at why was it there was this moment in the 80s when there were all these amazing, you know, white, ethnic white athletes winning gold medals and ruling the world. And, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't about race, was it? No, what defined? no it was never about, you know, it wasn't about race and it was never attributed to race at that particular point. It, you know, um, as I said, you can speak to people now and, and if, you know, Kenyans are dominating middle distance running, there's going to be something, some description about where they're born and altitude. If it's um, uh, um, Usain Bolt, if it's, you know, the magic in his twitch or fibers or whatever it will be. Mm. But when it came to white athletes, not just, you know, those great runners, you know, Larry Bird, the great basketball player, everything came down to, you know, their um, their toughness, it came down to their intelligence, it came down to, um, you know, them working hard and their social it. context. But, you know. The 
social conflict is what I, I was trying to get at mm. in terms of what you yeah. point out was yeah. was significant about the social context. Yeah, and 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 that social context became the the story and the narrative for their greatness and how Which good they were. Which is chaotic. What was the social context? Well, just this, you know, where they had come from and how they had become, you know, great runners and, and great athletes. Because it was to do with a network of athletic, like there was so much more amateur athletics. There were yeah. so many more places where people could train, which a lot of which has mm -hmm. been lost. Yeah, it, it, and it has been lost. Um, but then again, as I said, if you compare it to how the black peers were compared, the social context doesn't play a part in terms of their success. It always played a, a role in the success of some of these athletes, but not so much their black contemporaries. Um, I want to talk a bit about health as well. One of the really interesting ways, and it seems positive ways that race is talked about in a scientific context, is these stories about research into apparent predisposition and conditions. So I think about the South Asian community in diabetes, which is definitely a phenomenon um, in my family. Um, there's been interesting um, claims about hypertension and stroke in the African American community. I don't know if um, Andrea and um, Gavin want to share those. So one of the, I mean, it, it, it's very clear um, that our advances in genetics um, also involve um, advances in population genetics. Um, now, one of the things that, that that can do is can show historical movements of populations going back thousands of years um, through small genetic markers in, in current populations. You can see the, the similarities and the differences um, in those populations. But the other side of population genetics I relates to, to disease. And, um, and, and yes, there are differences between populations in terms of the prevalence of certain diseases, and some of those differences are the result of genetics. Some of them are a result of environmental factors, epigenetics as well. But, but the, I mean, the classic example, two classic examples, the one is, is, is sickle cell anemia, where if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, or, or your, your ancestors did, um, then um, if you have one allele, of, of a particular allele, you, you uh, of a, a particular gene, then you have immunity um, to malaria. However, two uh, of having um, both alleles means that you are then um, uh, w w will get uh, sickle cell anemia, and that's why it's more prevalent. So that's the result of, of natural selection. The other example, because most of the differences in, in um, uh, the genetic differences between different populations are not the result of natural selection; they result of genetic drift, and the classic case of that um, is sickle cell anemia, um, is, sorry, is, is Pesach um, and, and other diseases in, in the Jewish community, where what happened was that you had, in, in the Ashkenazi history, you had small groups, um, small populations moving to a particular area, so you had little bottlenecks of small populations where ex um, uh, um, particular genes could, could take root more easily, to, to trade for those genes, um, and, and some of those were the genes for um, things like Pesach, and that's, that's how that spread. So it wasn't through natural selection, it was through genetic drift. And that's the two roots why some populations have different susceptibilities to different um, diseases. And there are a range of diseases, um, uh, you know, those specific ones, but things like high blood pressure and things like that as well. Yeah, well, I'm interested, Andrew, because you wrote specifically about drug research, well-intentioned, which was looking at, well, do we need to target specific drugs and treatments that, say, African-Americans for this, or um, people from the, from Latino backgrounds? And there have been medicines targeted have, that way. Tell yeah. me about those. In fact, the first racially specific drug, Vibro, um, to be approved in the U.S. by the FDA was for uh, hypertension. 
and it was because in the US it was believed that hypertension was um, so more highly prevalent among black Americans than white Americans. In fact, the same is believed here that, in fact, NICE guidelines, so NICE is what uh, doctors use to decide how to give treatment to the patient, they specify that if you're under 55 and you're black, you will be given a different pill if you have hypertension than if you're white. And they specify black, so it's skin color based. Um, and like I said, the same in the US. Now, this is a statistical question. It's not, you know, although there may be population level, very subtle population level differences. So, for example, when you talk about diabetes, I don't have diabetes in my family. Although there may be doctors who, when I meet them, will assume that I may well. Um, but these are statistical questions. Now, there was a um, brilliant epidemiologist, Jay Kaufman, in uh, Canada, who teamed up with a health researcher, Richard Cooper, who worked his whole life in Arkansas and saw how um, racist the medical system could be. And what they do is they go through the data. And on hypertension, and this, this is a condition that's been so hyper-racialized in Britain and the US um, that you know, people, talk, people have built hypotheses around it. So in the US, for example, there's this slavery hypertension yeah. hypothesis because we know that in Africa, people have very low blood pressure. So to explain high blood pressure in black Americans, people said that people coming on the slave ship, um, the ones who survived were the ones who were able to retain more water. Yeah. So they would have had more salt in their bodies. And you know, that, that explains high hypertension now in that community. You know, a really convoluted way of explaining why this particular group of people would be different from other people. Um, and when they looked at the data uh, around if you assign this drug to white people and this drug to black people, um, actually who benefits? And what they found is that assigning uh, a drug for hypertension by race actually is no more reliable or hardly more reliable than tossing a coin. And the reason for that is because hypertension is caused by lots of different things. Billions of dollars of money have been poured into finding genetic causes for high hypertension in black Americans, coming up with practically nothing. We know that high hypertension is caused primarily by diet and stress. And, for example, uh, my mum has hypertension because Indian cooking, she will just not let go of the salt. You know, she just mm. throws salt into her food, but she knows it's not good for her, she does it anyway. We know that if you're poorer, you're likely to have more salt in your diet because your food is of lower quality. We know that black Americans have um, lower uh, living standards on average than white Americans. Black Americans die of every, almost everything at higher rates than white Americans, even infant mortality. Now, are we saying that black Americans as a group are so genetically disadvantaged that they would die of everything? at higher rates than white Americans. Yeah, they're predisposed to death. We know that there are these huge, you know, other explanations. And this is where medical research is going now in the US. Um, I'm speaking at the National Institutes of Health next month about this. But there are commissioners, uh, health commissioners, in places like New York City. There are people looking at this now, wringing their hands because they can't find genetic explanations for why black Americans die of everything. And now they're starting to realize, well, actually, we need to look at the social aspects of these diseases. Coming back to this, is it clearly the kind of key underlying thing if you're, you've not 
trying to look for a racial explanation, then you mm -hmm. have to look at what's going on in society, perhaps for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the issue of intelligence, which connects very much, I think, to the bigger social policy pictures being painted using things like intelligence. Can we clarify how far does mainstream science now attempt to measure intelligence? Okay, so, so there have been a number of attempts to find genes specifically for um, intelligence. And um, every time they've come up empty-handed, the, uh, th there have been a couple of cases where people announced that they had found um, genes for intelligence um, only for those to, 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 um, uh, to be rubbished by their peers. So the most people can find now are, are kind of clusters of genes, usually hundreds of genes, that have a small impact on um, on IQ, um, a very small impact on IQ tests. And there have been no studies that I'm aware of which have looked at, at their prevalence in terms of different populations. So um, there, there doesn't appear to be any significant difference um, in genes related to intelligence between different populations. Um, certainly none of the studies that have, uh, that have been um, done so far have found this. And generally what has been found is that, that there are now um, uh, thousands of, of genes, more than a thousand genes that are implicated in what we'd call intelligence. Um, and and, and often very often what, what they're calling intelligence is performance in an IQ test, which is not the same thing as, as intelligence. Um, what IQ test tests um, are your ability to deal with abstract logic, and that is hugely environmentally um, uh, influenced. So um, in terms of the genetics of, of intelligence, what we can say with confidence is that trying to compare, say, genes for um, something like sickle cell anemia um, and intelligence, you're not comparing like with like. You're not even comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing fish and bicycles. Um, um, they're just not the same thing. So how should we view IQ tests now? Because they are still being used, aren't they? They're very widely used in America, but they are still used um, in Britain, including for um, grammar schools which um, um, seems mm. to, to, to may wanted to expand. So, um, I mean, those, those are tests of verbal and nonverbal logic. And, 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 and there's certainly some use in IQ tests because they do correlate to performance in certain things, in, in for example, uh, mathematics and computer science and so on, because basically they're testing the same kind of things. You do well in an IQ test, you probably will do well in a math test and in a computer science test because it's the same, it's, it's using the same kind of intelligence. Um, so in that sense, they are quite useful. They're much more widely used um, in the United States. Um, and in that respect, well, um, if they do give some indication of performance in certain professions and certain academic courses, um, one can't um, object to them um, per se and until one looks at the history of IQ tests and, and how they've been used to differentiate between groups um, rather than between, um, than between individuals. And you have to remember Angela. that IQ testing was born out of eugenics. It was in order to be able to compare populations that people had these IQ tests in the first place. And in this country, for class reasons, in order to understand whether poorer people were really more stupid than richer people. Um, and we have to remember also that people think about IQ tests or intelligence as somehow, you know, deeply innate, that somehow your intelligence is something you cannot change. Diet, good diet and good education has a remarkable impact on, on an IQ test, actually. Being in a wealthy family has a remarkable impact on an IQ test, actually. 
Um, and in Gavin's book, he mentions that being, if you're a kid that's been adopted into a wealthier family, your IQ goes up. Which is quite enormous. So um, actually intelligence, however we measure it, and, it's, and IQ tests are not a reliable way of measuring intelligence, we know that. What, what that's all we have. Is well, one, we don't really know what intelligence is. It's a multitude of different aspects of how we think. You know, and different cultures value different things in different ways. Different cultures nurture things in different ways. So the way that IQ tests have been developed in one particular country, they might be developed completely differently by another culture in another country in a, at a different time. So given that they're a blunt instrument anyway, even then, even with the information that we have from IQ testing, we know that intelligence is malleable. And even now, even the most hereditarian geneticist will say that 50% of IQ is heritable if you grow up in well-provided-for um, circumstances. That heritability can fall to zero if you don't. If you're in a very low socioeconomic group, it can be as low as zero. Well, this is coming back to that Freakonomics line, that you know, a, a really obvious factor where you could measure someone's likelihood of success is if they came from a house full of books, as yes. if the presence of the books as a physical object imbues you with intelligence. It's a very good example of that. But one, of the, one of the ways that, that hereditarians have said, look, IQ is primarily genetic, is through twin studies. Um, so, and their favorite way of doing this oh is yes. to test um, identical twins who've been separated um, supposedly at birth. And, and one of the most famous and the biggest of these studies was done by a very famous British psychologist called Cyril Byrne. And um, that had a huge influence on the decision to introduce IQ testing for the 11 plus exams in Britain. Um, unfortunately, after his death, it emerged that Cyril Byrne had invented all his tests. <laughs> um, um, the one it's wonderful amazing. case I, I, I looked because I looked at his, at his, at, at his original paper. He, he invented had, an assistant. As well. he had, he had invented <laughs> one of, at least one of his assistants was was, was invented. And one of the he had a wonderful case of, of one kid was these are British children. Um, one was um, um, adopted by a very um, wealthy landed um, aristocratic family, and the other by um, by. Uh, a peasant, um, <laughs> or I think he was—I think he was a herder, a shepherd, um, um, and all I could think was that he had—he um, had been reading the Winter's Tale, um, <laughs> and um, they only had IQs of two points apart. But what we know from more recent IQ studies, which incidentally have been funded also by the Pioneer Fund, this Redwood Fund, um, where they've—they've they've, they've tested separated identical twins in the few cases where they've been raised in very different kinds of families, working class um, and middle class, for example. In one case, the uh, one twin was raised in the family of a CIA analyst, and the other in a stable family of a fisherman who had no books in his house, and their IQs were 20 points apart. In another case of um, one person raised in a poor working class family, the other raised um, in an upper middle class family, the IQs were 29 points apart. So the the differences in, in environment um, have a huge impact. Obviously, with twins, if you get identical twins who are raised in very similar circumstances, they're genetically the same, their IQs are going to be very similar. Mm. You, but you, you, you put them in very different uh, environments and, and, and you see the impact of environment there. Um, Derek, what's really interesting, you were saying earlier, is you know, in the way that we look at the treatment of um, black British athletes in sport and in America as well, 
Um, this separation, this insistence on separating off intelligence from performance has been really interesting, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and it, it's, it's prevalent in, you know, when you watch sport and when you listen to sport that it's separated. But, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, listen to these guys. I, I sort of sit here and I think, my God, I'm living and breathing this all of the time. It's so insidious that, you know, every day of your life or every day of my life, um, my height, um, my being, um, it, it has my perception, you know. So, you know, when I wrote the book originally, part of it was because everyone made an assumption that, you know, I was a basketball player. Now, I can, you know, absolutely knock every positive myth of uh, blackness if anyone sees me on a basketball court. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it, the, the, you know, and I'm being slightly flipped when I say this, but actually the anxiety stays with you throughout your whole life because, you know, I, I do a lot of work in philanthropy, so I work with lots of people with wealth and sit in lots of boardrooms and often the one black person in that particular room. And, and I know that as I sit in that room, I am not able to get as angry as the white male peer that's sitting next to me um, because the perception of me being angry is going to be very different from the perception of that white male being angry. Um, now, this is being made to be my problem, but it's actually not my problem. It's the white people around the room. It's their problem. But I face the consequences of their perception of that problem. So this whole notion of, you know, black physicality, of intelligence, um, the myths that you mentioned earlier, you know, for, for black people, it's something that you live and breathe every day. And, and it just, it, you know, as you were talking, it just occurred to me that, you know, this year I didn't do my son's, um, uh, you know, the parents do the run in the, the sports oh day. Yeah, because yeah. last year I came last in the sports <laughs> day, you know. And, and it was, and, uh, and it was a fun event. But I came off and I felt so shame and felt so anxious about coming last in the, the, the father's race because partially it was that expectation that I've been carrying throughout the whole of my life and the expectation that I think that other people watching have been carrying that I need to be athletically superior to everyone else. So, you know, there are some elements of, of the book that are <laughs> quite torturous actually when I, when I think about it because it doesn't matter how, um, you know, successful wherever I move, actually those anxieties are very prevalent through every facet of my life. And, and the black physicality part against the black intelligence part, you know, the conversations that I have with people that have said over the years, you know, Derek, you're not strategic enough, you know, and I know where those comments are coming oh. from, you know. There was one thing we were talking about backstage. I don't know if how many of you saw the Guardian magazine on Saturday, but as well as a very interesting interview with Taylor Swift, there was a really, <laughs> <laughs> it was very good, but there was also a, a really amazing interview with um, the amazing um, female football player, who's only, you know. Eniola. Eniola. Yeah. Who went public about the racism she'd endured yeah. playing for England. And one of the incidents, and they had, I have to describe it because I was interested in your comments on it. They had this um, facility where um, players could then watch back their own performance, yeah. hearing the commentary of coaches. Yeah. And she heard two of them talk about her as being lazy. 
And she couldn't understand what was lazy about her performance. And it was that word, and there were other moments yeah. like this, which then when you piece them together down the line, you realise she was just seen in a different way. Absolutely. And, and, and not regarded as intelligent. Yeah, it's bizarre. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you almost have a code. I can, you know, I have a WhatsApp group. And with this WhatsApp group, we, we generally, when we're in meetings and stuff, we, we wait for those trigger words, which, which, you know, there's a cluster, be it lazy, be it non-strategic, be it gazelle, be it naive, that you often listen to because these are old, age-old racist tropes. You know, they've been around for years, but they're continually used and they're continually, as I said with the book, you know, racism in the UK. So the, the word might change, but actually the sentiments are really deep-rooted in, you know, the history of this country, but the history of race relations in this country and, and science. And, and um, you know, Annie Ola, who, who is a... a you know, uh, a lawyer and, and fought for, know, for you know, she, she fought for, for um, higher pay for a lot of her female peers in the work that she's done. And it, it's an absolutely inspirational figure. She scored tons of goals for England at a point when she ended up, you know, being taken out of the England team. Um, you know, you still, even with all of the things that she's achieved, still being classified in a way that goes back to, you know, some of these age-old stereotypes. Now, we have more to talk about, but I thought now would be a good moment to take some of your questions, and then we'll come to Mrs. Stefan here to discuss that you want to respond to. And apologies in advance, I'm going to try and... I want to alternate male-female. I'm going to start with a uh, female question, if that's okay. And apologies if I don't touch anyone properly and I misgender anyone. It honestly isn't meant um, wrongly. So can I take a, a lady first? Right, so the gentleman first. Yes, <laughs> loud and front. Is that the first one? Yes, you get a microphone. And when I take the next one, wave your arm around a bit if you're higher up, because actually I'm slightly blinded by the lights. Apologies. Uh, years ago, I got involved with a mass experiment where we got more than 100,000 people involved, measuring cognitive skills. And we concluded with a guy called Adrian Owen at the University of Western Ontario that you couldn't boil intelligence down to fewer than three numbers if you do boil it down to reasoning ability, memory, verbal skills. And Adrian would make the comment, and I want to know what uh, Derek thinks of this, that um, it's interesting that when you look at sporting ability, we don't have an AQ, an athletics mm. quotient. And it's kind of interesting in a way that measuring abilities in the sporting arena in the Olympics is actually much more sophisticated than intelligence. And I just wondered if people could... I should add, actually, by the way, that our study came out in Neuron and was hotly contested by the psychometric community, which we totally hated. They've hacked <laughs> it and used arguments ever since. But I'd just love to get to the bottom of the AQ question. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, what I would say is, is this, is that there's a wider context to, you know, who succeeds and who doesn't. Um, and some of that will come down to funding, some, some of it will come down to access to those particular sports. So, you know, I look at a sport like um, basketball in this country, for example, which has huge um, participation numbers, but absolutely very little in the way of funding. But when you look at... Um, you know, the amount of people that play it, when you look at the accessibility issues to it, actually, if there was 
a smoother pathway and as much funding for some of the other sports, be it cycling or be it whatever, then actually the potential for England to or Great Britain to be an elite um, uh, country um, or nation in terms of um, basketball would actually be there. But the context is if the money's not there, the funding's not there, if the access isn't there, and if the pathways are really poor, which are has been historic issues with that particular sport, then it means that those that are going to succeed in it are actually, you know, um, going to succeed not because of the system, but in spite of, of the system. Yeah, and that's what's come up in the other <laughs> on, 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 on the idea of intelligence being reduced to a single number, which is what IQ represents, the whole idea of, of G um, in, in, in IQ testing terms is, is um, that there's a, a vector for general intelligence and that all these different subtests of IQ tests come together um, into G, and, that, and this gives a single number for, um, for general intelligence. Um, and I think that's, it's, that's a fundamental flaw of IQ tests because there isn't, you can't reduce intelligence to a single number. Um, as I said before, what, what IQ tests really do test is, is, is your ability to deal with abstract logic. Um, so the more you expose to abstraction in various, of various kinds, um, the, more, the better you'll do an IQ test. So, so if we, it's why IQ tests have to become more and more difficult um, to maintain the mean of 100. And in fact, if they went back to mm. 1904 when the first IQ tests were done, the average IQ then would be uh, 70 today, um, which, which um, a, few, a few generations ago people would have called moronic. Mm-hmm. Um, yet people haven't changed genetically since, since then. Um, what has happened is they're more exposed to abstraction. But of course, there are many other different kinds of intelligence that IQ tests don't measure. We, some people like to talk about emotional um, intelligence, mm. but other things um, um, as well. Wisdom, for example. Um, practical uh, intelligence. Artistic intelligence. Musical ability as a, as a form of intelligence. Um, and so on. I could go on and on. Um, so there are a range of forms of, of intelligence, and IQ measures just um, a very narrow um, prism of, of intelligence and then reduces it to a single number. And I think that's its flaw. Absolutely. And it's really important also to remember that the intelligence community, even now, we have to remember, like we said before, IQ testing was born out of eugenics, and, it was born and there was a lot of racism in the early history of uh, IQ testing. There still is. If you go to the annual intelligence conference, there are loads of racists on that list, outed racists who can't get uh, in invitations to universities because their work is so um, incendiary. Um, the guy who came up with the idea of G, Chris Brown, at the Uni- University of Edinburgh, he's dead now, um, when he, uh, he was a notorious sexist and racist. As a journalist, I've had loads of people who former students write to me and say he did these shocking things, he said these terrible things in class. He was finally fired, he finally lost his position only when he started defending paedophilia. He was allowed to be sexist and racist for a really long time. When he started defending paedophilia, then the university finally put its hand up and said no no more. Um, But you have to remember that there are people behind these ideas. They don't sit in isolation. And the reason the ideas look the way they do is because of these people. It was always loaded to begin with. And even now when we talk about you can't talk about these things in purely scientific terms. You have to talk about them in social and cultural terms because they made it political from the beginning. Fantastic. 
going to say this. In your book, you said something about, or someone said, you know, before uh, there's data, there's possibilities. I I can't remember who it was. Um, But before there's data, there's ideologies and philanthropy. And and, and when you have that combination, it actually means whether it's AQ, whether it's IQ, actually they're not being led by possibilities. It's actually being led by political and social context and the money that sits behind the research that enables them to do it in the first and, place. And they will always want us to believe that what they're doing is perfectly objective, mm-hmm. that there is no politics there at all, because if they can convince us of that, then we buy it more easily. This is the danger of scientific racism or scientific sexism, is to make us believe that what they're telling us is just pure fact, when in fact the politics is always there. Yeah. Right. Um, let's have a go with the classes. Um, are we 21st? Here we go. Um, so I think what's really interesting is that thinking about how people are classifying racial, racial groups and how they then turn those into hierarchies. And so much of this historically from the books I've read, especially Yogendra, has been basically in the eye of the beholder. Whoever decides the categories puts themselves at the top. And most of the time, historically, that seems to be coming from white Western Europeans. Has there been any historical context where other communities and other populations have created some form of population categories and what oh do they look yes. like? You work about this in your book, don't you? Yeah, I look at the caste system in India, in India because it is very similar. In fact, early eugenicists, Western eugenicists, were fascinated by the Indian caste yeah. system because for them it was eugenics in practice. Here was, a, here was a society, a culture, which had subdivided people and told people to only mate within those groups. And those groups were thought to have specific roles in society that only they could do. So, for example, my dad's family were a military family. um, And I don't know how far that goes back, but when the British arrived, they designated the Sainis, my family, as a martial race. So they were to go into the military. They were my father and my grand, my grandfather and my great grandfather fought for the British, um, although you wouldn't know it because you never (laughs) talk about it. and this was kind of race, racism in practice happening in this country, and it still exists. You know, there's still so much casteism. But also there's colour with it too, because it's, I mean, I think, I think yeah. you write about in your book, you know, the Brahmins, the upper caste, tend to be fair, there's an expression of fairness, mm-hmm. the idea that the untalented touchable is the lowest caste, the casteless are, yeah. are dark skinned and are doing the kind of dirty, menial jobs. I mean, it mm-hmm. is a, a literal racial, racial system, and mm-hmm. the whole link to Aryanism. Both yeah. with you know, kind of Hitler's fascination with it, yeah. and, very and Hindu extremists, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, today Hindu nationalists um, still revere Hitler. In fact, yeah. I still get comments from people saying that Hitler wasn't a racist; he had it all right um, because he kind of you know believed in this Aryan myth. There are a lot of Hindu nationalists now who buy into this Aryan myth and are looking for archaeological evidence for it, in the same way that the Germans mm-hmm. did in Nazi Germany. Um, so. It happens all over the world. In China, for instance, um, there is this widespread belief amongst, um, that is even taught in some schools, that the Chinese did not, uh, are not the product of the migration out of Africa as we all are, and we know they are because of genetic evidence, but that they somehow um, evolved separately from an earlier form of Homo erectus that existed in China millions of years ago. Um, and that's also a belief that's becoming popular in Russia, so these are about origin myths. This is about maintaining power hierarchies and maintaining also these nationalist ideas about belonging. I would say probably the Hutu in Fushi in, in Rwanda, where um, there were myths um, about each other and 
and in, in the end, that led to, to, to this genocidal conspiracy. In, in, in my book, one of the things I, I speculate about, and it, it, it's no more than speculation, is that, that um, racism, um, or what today we, we, we call racism, um, um, goes back even further than slavery and colonialism um, in, in Europe. Um, uh, what we now know about um, because of population genetics and, and full genome analysis is that um, the original hunter-gatherer people of Europe, as I mentioned, the dark-skinned people, um, were replaced, first of all, by farmers who came down from Anatolia um, in, in, in ancient Turkey. Um, and then they, in turn, were largely displaced by um, herders who came from the Russian steppe from about 5,500 years ago. They were very warlike, so they replaced the people of Stonehenge, who were the farmers, um, who had previously replaced the hunter-gatherers. Now, with each of these groups, when you get one group dominating another group, um, and, uh, and, and often that domination is, is by force, then you, they tend to sublimate the other group and, and develop ideas of the other group being inferior. Now, the other group, the original group, um, uh, was the hunter-gatherers, and they were dark-skinned. So, um, and, and the same in the same in India. It's why the, um, for example, the Brahmins are lighter-skinned because they carry far more genes from the people from the Russian steppe than they do of the, the original hunter-gatherer um, genes. And so, so it's quite possible that the colorism or racism in, in, in India and racism in Europe goes back even further than than um, than, than uh, modern. to assume that colorism has, is that ancient? Because we know that, for example, the great um, African civilization, for example, the Nubians who conquered Egypt yeah. and then became very powerful, was, and they then projected themselves as you know, the kind of dominant, naturally dominant group. Um, and I don't know to what extent that colorism, when you look at, for example, if you go to the British Museum and you look at these uh, ancient Egyptian frescoes, and images, there doesn't seem to be that sense that one color group is better than another. When Nubians and Egyptians are depicted, there's, there are black skin shades, there are lighter sh skin shades in, in all the groups, which is how the population would have looked as well. It would have been very color mixed. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it's inevitable, but no. it, it often does work that way. Yeah. But I also think, in so, to some extent, you know, when I read, I read a lot about race, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of our ideas about race and colorism, I think we, ha we inherit in this country from America because of the color divide there. And in fact, these things, out play, these things play out more subtly in the rest of the world, including in this country, I think. And we, I don't think we always, I don't know if we consider that subtlety as carefully as we should because of the stark black, white, and history of slav slavery. In I America. think there's a whole other debate we can talk about <laughs> colorism. Um, I was um, uh, questioning recently about um, the impact of stress on populations in a study that was done in the United States um, using uh, the incidence of premature birth rates in Muslim women before and after 9-11 as a marker of the impact of racism-induced stress on populations. And I was wondering, that's obviously a very specific biological marker of the impact of stress on a specific population, but um, to what extent can stress, whether it's just 
being in a racist society or having someone tell you you're not going to do as well on this IQ test because you're black or X, Y, Z, the um, could cause systematic uh, health issues, mental health issues in, in various populations. Thank you. Any questions? There's been, there have been a number of studies on the um, impact of stress on various kinds of academic tests. Um, most of them have been done with men and women. So, so uh, the idea of being able to rotate um, shapes and do certain geometrical skills has always been thought of as a predominantly male thing. And so they've, they've had one group um, which has been told there's been no difference in any test between men and women, and the other told nothing. And there's significant differences in the scores. In the one that's told there's no difference, men and women were equal. In some cases, um, um, the women were, were, were better, did better in the test than the men. In the um, group which is told nothing, where, where the prejudice is, is, is um, assumed, um, uh, that uh, the, the, the group um, who feel they're inferior do worse. And there's one test that was done similarly with um, black and white students in America, mathematical test. Um, and the, the, the one group was told that there there's never been any differences of a racial, um, uh, on, on a racial basis between, um, between students, and the other group was told nothing. And again, there were significant differences in performance. And this related to the stress factor. When people go into a test feeling they're going to be inferior, um, and it's something you were, you, were ref you were referring to, often their performance um, will be affected by that. Yeah. And you definitely see it medically. I mean, hypertension, for instance, is high when people are looking for factors under other than genetics that lead to higher blood pressure. Um, being an immigrant is associated with higher blood pressure and hypertension. Um, being more educated is associated with lower blood pressure, presumably because you have a slightly easier life, perhaps an easier job. So there's, you know, there are, there are all of these factors at play. And we have to remember hypertension, high blood pressure is, leads to many of the causes of death, like heart attacks and heart disease. Thank you. I have no questions on this slide. I think there's questions on the talk later. Thank you. It's very fascinating talk so far. Um, you've all alluded to what I would call systematic racism in whether it's sports or science, and I work in the media, so I think it's prevalent in the media, given the <laughs> scale of the issue. <laughs> um, what are we to do? I mean, you know, I, I find myself really grateful that you guys are here and in enlightening us in this way, um, but I, I also feel massive anxiety as a person of color. So I wondered if you had some thoughts on that. Well, <laughs> Yeah, do you want to take that one first? I, no, I, I, so I, I do, I feel your anxiety and I feel anxious, you know, because I think um, when I think about my son having to go through um, not the same experiences that I had, but the same feelings, but different experiences, but it's just the same thing that came around. It, it scares the shit out of me, and, and, and sorry to swear, but, you know, it, it absolutely does. It makes me incredibly anxious, but... At the same time, you know, uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, in, in Lambeth, for, for example, there's a project there called Black Thrive, which is taking a systemic um, approach to the overwhelming numbers of black people that's in the mental health um, system in various ways who are not accessing um, um, uh, uh, health um, provision. And, you know, when I look at a program like that that absolutely acknowledges the impact of racial discrimination doesn't treat mental health as something that's located in the individual but looks at it from a systemic issue meaning housing education 
family relationships, environment, neighborhood trauma, and then tries to bring in, you know, the NHS, policing, and all of the parts of the system. And again, it's only two or three years in. But at the very least, I think to myself, actually, this is, um, and it's got high levels of community involvement. So the community, are there driving it. It's done through their lived experiences, not done to them. I think there are just pockets of really good pieces of work that really are challenging the norm. Now, whether they are getting um, projects like this enough or sufficient money, and when I say money, I don't mean masses of billions. I'm talking about long-term sustained investment to see, because that's what it will take. It will take long-term sustained investment to see whether these things work. Um, but that's where I hold out hope. When I see really radical, um, uh, uh, when I say radical, I mean something that really is getting the police force and the NHS and others to really challenge themselves, challenge their practices, really look at more culturally appropriate interventions to better serve the community, then I hold out some faith to say, yep, there is, there are things that are happening, but that needs to be happening on a far wider level. What your question does obviously take us very nicely into, I think, the area that we need to talk about in the last kind of 11 minutes or so, which is sort of where we are now, what are the threats? Um, and you know what we can do. And one of the things that you talk about in your book that really jumped out at me, Gavin, is you flagged up that Dominic Cumming, who is now absolutely central to um, the Prime Minister running this country, wrote a really lengthy attack on Shaw Start centres, very much what seemed to emphasise the bell curve idea of you know those those we don't need to do these kinds of interventions. What's your? I mean, I'm interested just that you did name him. Um, and then Toby Young is another name that's come up in recent yeah. months for his uh, connection to eugenicist sentences. So maybe to you first and then Andrew would like to talk about um, Yeah. So um, well Dominic Cummins, um, I mean when he worked for Michael Gove Michael Gove as and, uh, as you mentioned, he, he he wrote a very long paper where he said that academic performance of children um, uh, had very little to do with their parents or their school teachers um, and was largely due to their genes. That children who did badly um, was because they just were, were born with bad genes. Um, I thought this was very interesting because if you had looked at British um, um, schooling figures, um, particularly for those who are on preschool meals, you would found that for the last ooh, at least 20 years, right at the bottom and falling are um, white working class boys. Um, above them are Caribbean boys. Above them are, are African boys. Above them are, are, are Asian boys. And then we get the girls who outperform boys at, at, at every level. Now, if you took that view, that it was primarily genetic academic performance, you'd have to say, well, girls just had more intelligent genes than boys, um, um, and African kids have much better intelligent genes than white, than, than white kids. But strangely enough, Dominic Cummings didn't come to that <laughs> conclusion. And it wasn't only Dominic Cummings, it was Boris Johnson as well. He kind of picked up on that, and he did a speech where he said we should be putting much more money into the people with IQs over 130 rather than the idiots. Um, and he, he, he used the wonderful thing of, of, of what we need to do is, 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 is shake up the pack and see which cornflakes come to the top. Um, and it's like cornflakes that were minted in Egypt came to come <laughs> up to the top. Thank you. Um, Angela, what's your view about this? You know, how far we're seeing race violence affecting public policy? Um, it really worries me that these uh, eugenic, essentially eugenic arguments have re-entered the mainstream, that not only 
are they being discussed on alt-right, you know, dark web forums as they always have been, but now they've somehow reached the very peak of politics. It's not just Boris Johnson, also Trump talks in these terms, these kind of white supremacist terms about shithole countries, you know, as though people who come from certain places can't possibly be good citizens. And we, we, you know, he only wants Northern Europeans, white Northern Europeans, to go and live in America. This takes us back more than 100 years, you know, to the time when, for example, the U.S. introduced its Chinese Exclusion Act, trying to ban people from Asia. Um, it's so dark and it's so dangerous, and we have to fight it not just on the scientific front, which we're trying to do, but also on a moral front. I mean, this is the weird thing about politics right now, that morality seems to be going out the window. It doesn't matter if someone's a bad person anymore. Well, we were talking about the word racist. There's been huge debates about what does it take to be actually called racist. And there was quite a big debate at the BBC. But I did notice at the World Service, and that tweet that Donald Trump put out about Ilhan Omar um, in particular, you know, um, was described in the World Service News Bulletin as President Trump's racist tweet. And it was a huge deal that they'd used that word as an adjective. But it seems that all this is now debatable, whether you can call it. John Pope, yeah. the North America editor, said, oh, it's not for us to decide if that was a racist or not. And I thought it was a really interesting thing for a journalist to say. If we can't say it, then who the hell is going to say it? If journalists can't call out people, then we're not doing our job. Another issue, which might not sound like it's very connected, but I think it is, there is a public obsession, I think, in many countries with sort of DNA and doing your genetic testing. And I was joking with them, I bet there was this amazing, I'm going to tell you about it, but I bet <laughs> loads of you've seen it. There was a, a little advert from an American testing site, and it was a little film to show you what amazing stories like you find in your family if you investigate it. And it was like um, set in slavery time, and it's like a black woman running to meet her white male lover who says, I know a place where you'll be free. And, and lots of people commented on, of all the stories to come up with that might be in your, your histories in America, the idea of a, of a black slave actually having a really positive, emancipatory relationship with a white man was probably one of the less likely scenarios. So they, got, they took the advert down. But, but it doesn't change the fact that there is this romantic fascination, and people do want to know. And I mean, you saw Elizabeth Warren, you know, Trump jumped on this idea of, of whether she did or didn't have Native American ancestry. What is the, your, your views about what? Because people do seem to want to know what the, the race, racial makeup is. I, I mean, where I've seen it, and again, I don't know what the impact of it is, but where I've seen it be more positive is I know that um, in Harvard, the Hutton Center were doing a, a genealogy and genetics curriculum, which is really using DNA testing with young people in school as part of the curriculum to teach social history to look at their own personal backgrounds. And part of it was to encourage more people to get into science, but part of it was also just to um, dissect some of the myths around, you know, racial purity and who's black and who's white and things like that. You know, in, in that sense, uh, and again, I don't know the impact of it. I don't know how widespread it was. It was a few years ago that I, I you know, observed the, the work, but it felt like that was potentially positive because there would be something that would enable people from a very young age to start being able to question some of these myths that they would be growing up with. Um, in terms of the television shows, you know, <laughs> I don't really watch them. Yeah, I mean, that was just an advert. But, <laughs> but I don't know what are your takes on, on people's perception of, of DNA testing and of, of wanting to know what their genetic makeup is. I don't have any problem with individuals going to what we call um, gene testing and, and finding um, 
must say, have a, a theme called endurance running, as, as my brother <laughs> alluded to with his car. Um, <laughs> I've no problem with that. I, th- my problem is that people read too much. Um, it, they, they think that genes explain everything. So that there must be a gene for this and a gene for that. And genes just don't work that, <laughs> that, that, um, that way, very, very seldom. Um, and so they feel that a lot of things, things that are, are, are the products of culture, of environment, um, have a genetic origin. Um, and, and the media latches onto those kinds of stories oh, because yeah. they, li- they know people are interested in, in, in genes and they know people think that genes can do everything so that then stories that, that, that claim that, there's a, um, that, that, that there are genetic differences between populations or between um, um, in, ter- in terms of gender abilities, um, um, the media will latch onto those. Well, I'm not going to let the journalists off the hook here, but is part of the concern about social sciences, and we can have a whole debate about our social sciences, sciences, but I'm not going to quite open that up. But certainly, I mean, one of the things you referred to, um, I think in your book, uh, Gavin, was the psychology of today article, and you may have referred to it as well, Derek, which, you know, some guy supposedly claimed he could measure black women's relative attractiveness or unattractiveness, which, of course, is hoopster. It's, you know. He was from LSE. His name was, uh, his name was and is um, Satoshi Kanazawa. Um, and he did one study which he said that people from sub-Saharan Africa um, uh, had more um, diseases because they were less intelligent. Um, and that passed by without any slaps on his wrist. Then he did another piece in Psychology Today where he said that, um, that uh, uh, black women were innately unattractive because they had higher testosterone levels and that the most attractive people, um, the most attractive men were Asian men. And he's an Asian man. Um, uh, um, now, this one didn't go down so well. Um, it was fine to say that, that sub-Saharan Africans were less yeah. intelligent, but not so good to, 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 to question the attractiveness of, of different populations. And so LSE gave him a slap on the wrist. He wasn't allowed to publish anything in non-refereed journals for a year. Um, but do you think there is a problem with social sciences? And I know in your previous book, um, Inferior, you did look at you know that, that sort of strange relationship between um, social scientists hungry for funding and publicity, you know, presenting stories that they get picked up in the media that made all these sweeping claims about gender or about race. The problem is definitely in genetics and psychology as well, depending on how you classify psychology as a social scientist. Um, um, but there are really deep problems in the science. In the social sciences, I think there are actually more answers and good work in the social sciences than there are bad, although there is bad, because the social scientist has been doing race research for 70 years. When it moves out of biology and the study of racial difference and racism and discrimination went into the social sciences, social scientists were the ones who started looking at the impact of racism on the body and on the mind and in society. So critical race theory, all these wonderful disciplines, gender studies, all these wonderful disciplines, which are actually the fountain of information that scientists should be referring to when they say stupid things about race, they're not referring to. So actually, I would like to see more uh, reading between disciplines. Social scientists already read the scientific literature. We need scientists to read the social sciences. One question I have to ask you, because I have heard it said to me, is... Is there a risk, and this could be by a, a scientist, is there a risk of denying difference if we try to shut down the idea that there may be interesting and potentially useful research 
in uh, and around race, that it may not be meaningful so far, but it could be valid scientific research. Well, like I said, for 70 years, this research has been done within the social sciences, which is where it belongs. And there are, there can't be more than a handful of geneticists out there in the world now who think that racial categories have so much biological meaning that uh, there is worthwhile, is worthwhile doing uh, work into them. Even the, even the people on the very fringes who I spoke to, people who have come out on a limb and said, maybe we should be looking at racial differences in populations, for example, David Wright, even he says that actually most racial categories have no meaning to them whatsoever. So um, this work is being done, it has been done. And if you want to read it, you can, it's right there. Um, I'll take final thoughts from um, Derek first and then Adam. I'll try to be quite quick. Um, I, I, no, I, I, I mean, first and foremost, uh, you know, I come from, from the perspective of, you know, for years, if people are pushing certain ideologies, there's lots of money that goes into, and, and, and it doesn't really matter whether it's scientifically rigorous, I'm now thinking I'm going to get some twins and make them up and suddenly <laughs> put some reports out. But, but I, I just think that, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of money that goes into research, into the research community, goes into... Um, lots of things that reinforce these ideas. I just would like to see where philanthropic money becomes more radical and starts to weigh up the balance to really challenge some of these age-old notions and, and also, you know, create or fund the type of programs that are really trying to challenge these things and do it for a long period of time because, you know, um, that is one of the key ways in which some of these things can be really challenged. But also, when the next bell curve comes out, there needs to be something which is strong and as rigorous that, uh, not rigorous in terms of equality, but just in terms of the level of publicity that, in, that, uh, that counters it. And at the moment, it doesn't feel like there's enough that really counters some of these things yet. Okay. Yeah, what worries me is, is, is the way race science is proliferating on the web. Um, so you've got very powerful people on the web. Um, and they got there long before anyone on the left did. Um, and they've got huge audiences, people like Stephen Molyneux, for example, who are consistently pumping out race science. Um, and then you've got the people who, um, who are supporting aspects of race science, particularly the Ashkenazi intelligence um, thing. People like, um, as I mentioned, Andrew Sullivan, Stephen um, Pinker, Sam Harris, who are more part of the um, wider um, um, establishment. Some people even call them part of the liberal establishment, who's putting forward those ideas. Um, and the antidote tends, um, just as you're saying, they tend not to have the same kind of audience. Um, so it's on YouTube, it's uh, on um, forums like 4chan and 8chan, and a range of other web forums have been dominated by people from the far right. Um, and they perpetuate a myth that anyone who's questioning the ideas is just not interested in science or not going where the scientific breadcrumbs uh, uh, um, take them and are, are being um, dishonest. And the reality is quite the opposite. Um, so, I mean, that's why I did my book. Um, and I think um, uh, books like all three of ours are, are there to challenge this kind of thing. And, and hopefully they do, um, because it certainly needs to be challenged. Brilliant. I think all three books do. I think they're all offer such interesting and complementary perspectives on such a current issue. Um, don't forget, you can buy copies 
and get them signed with the finished applicants days after uh, we finish. My thanks to Derek Bardwell, Gavin Evans, Angela Saini. Thanks to you all for coming. I hope you enjoyed your uh, tea being late tonight. Um, and do come down and uh, get a book signed in a few minutes. Thank you.